This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical, where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Dr. David R. Jans to discuss his article published in the December Critical Care Medicine. His article is entitled, Hyperoxia is Associated with Increased Mortality in Patients Treated with Mild Therapeutic Hypothermia After Sudden Cardiac Arrest. Dr. Jans is a clinical fellow at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Jans, thank you for joining me today. So your paper is interesting to me is because there's a lot of interest going uh, around the idea of therapeutic hypothermia. And I think a lot of intensive care units around the country see therapeutic hypothermia as kind of Buck Rogers' uh, futuristic kind of care. But this is an element of, of care that's been around for some time. It's, it's part of ACLS. Um, New York City, interesting enough, will, won't transport you in a post-arrest situ- situation to a hospital that doesn't do therapeutic hypothermia. But tell us the background of you know, what you're looking for and why did you decide to ask these questions? Yeah, so uh, Ian, thanks for having me. It, initially, the main reason that uh, I was looking into this as a research question uh, and more from a personal background uh, is that I'm as a, a clinical fellow, I'm interested in, in research questions that uh, are looking at our usual care of patients and how uh, that may actually be detrimental uh, to outcomes. So another line of research I'm interested in is actually blood transfusions in patients in the ICU, which has uh, increasingly become more and more known as uh, being potentially harmful to patients. Hyperoxia uh, has, has interested me in the, in the same way. Um, especially after the publication of uh, the Kilgannon paper in JAMA in 2010, uh, showing that hyperoxia, you know, oxygen, uh, traditionally thought to be only good for patients, is now uh, potentially uh, bad for patients if you give too much. Uh, there's this juxtaposition of uh, the potential for hyperoxia in these cardiac arrest patients uh, along with a potential therapy that would counteract uh, the neurologic effects that hyperoxia can have on patients. Given that therapeutic hypothermia uh, is now becoming more widely accepted, especially for uh, sudden cardiac arrest, um, and is is probably going to move beyond that indication in the coming years, uh, meaning more and more hospitals will be doing it more and more, uh, I thought that um, this, this juxtaposition of hyperoxia and the therapy to counteracting the negative effects of hyperoxia was an interesting research question to look at, uh, especially given that the, the cost of ther- implementing therapeutic hypothermia, uh, it's about $47,000 uh, $47, for one quality-adjusted life year gained. So definitely we do more expensive things in hospitals, but if we're going to do expensive things, we may as well uh, make sure that we're uh, optimizing the situations patients are in while they're receiving these therapies. Practically speaking, Vanderbilt, uh, and specifically the co-authors in the paper, uh, Drs. Hollenbeck and Pearson and Pollock, 
job at not only uh, implementing therapeutic hypothermia at Vanderbilt uh, and offering it to patients, but also uh, what's uh, almost as important as that is collecting data uh, prospectively on the patients that uh, are treated with therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, and it's as that database has become a, a wealth of information uh, for people like us as the authors who want to ask questions uh, about therapeutic hypothermia patients and, and other potentially uh, bad outcomes associated with uh, things such as hyperoxia in these patients. Uh, and that's the, the story of how we came to uh, want to ask these research questions uh, in this specific patient population. So we really have two issues um, that we're dealing with. The one issue is is that we have this therapeutic hypothermia, which may be new to some of the people that are listening to here. So I'd ask you to to give us a little background on therapeutic hypothermia. And the other point is is that we would assume that all oxygen is good for us, uh, but you're saying in, in your paper, in, in your analysis, that patients given too much oxygen in a post-arrest circumstance um, is harmful to the patient. So let's take those apart one at a time. Give us the background on therapeutic hypothermia and and who should be getting those kind of patients, where it should be done at, and what would the benefits be? Uh, In 2002, uh, there were two papers actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, showing that in patients who have suffered uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with an initial rhythm of ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, uh, that those patients benefited uh, from receiving therapeutic hypothermia uh, for a period of 24 hours after their uh, ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation arrest. Patients uh, from those two studies, uh, those trials, I should say, uh, patients benefited in terms of neurologic outcomes. Uh, and there is mortality benefit if patients receive that as therapeutic hypothermia as a therapy. Uh, the way at uh, Vanderbilt University uh, that therapeutic hypothermia is implemented, which is similar to, uh, to its uh, implementation at other centers, uh, is when patients uh, either en route to the hospital or once they've arrived at the hospital, uh, a decision is made uh, whether or not the patient should receive this as a therapy. Uh, and if so, uh, they are externally cooled um, with cooling pads uh, to a target temperature of uh, between 32 and 34 degrees Celsius. Uh, they're maintained at that target temperature for 24 hours. Uh, and once uh, the 24-hour time period is up, they're uh, rewarmed uh, at a rate of about uh, 0.25 degrees per hour uh, until they've uh, reached normal thermia once again. Uh, again, this in uh, in past trials, specifically the two largest trials in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, have shown uh, positive outcomes in terms of neurologic, uh, long-term neurologic outcomes, mortality, uh, and uh, smaller studies. Uh, looking at therapeutic hypothermia uh, for, number one, uh, other indications other than ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation uh, have 
uh, already been done and or are underway, along with studies looking at using this therapy uh, for longer than 24 hours uh, to see if the benefit can be extended further in patients who just receive uh, therapy criteria for a longer period of time. Uh, that's the, the most distinct background of therapy hypothermia uh, I'll give for, for this discussion um, and uh, is, again, the background of how it came to be used uh, in our medical center. Um, in regards to hyperoxia, uh, for uh, a much longer period of time, uh, it's been known and seen in animal studies uh, and in humans. Uh, that uh, there are increasing uh, amounts and degrees of organ failures uh, when exposed to um, superphysiologic levels of oxygen, uh, specifically uh, the partial pressure of dissolved oxygen in the blood. Uh, and these are in normal animals and normal humans. Uh, there are plenty of situations where in animals uh, and humans uh, with disease that uh, well, we're required to maintain normoxia uh, to supplement them with additional oxygen. Uh, however, uh, actually frequently uh, in the effort to maintain normoxia uh, and from a variety of studies that have looked at patients exposed to hyperoxia, uh, we often overshoot. Uh, and uh, our intentions are good in trying to oxygenate these patients, uh, but at the same time, uh, we provide too much oxygen. Uh, physiologically, what this can cause in the patients uh, is when exposed to hyperoxia, uh, there's the formation of reactive oxygen species, which can cause oxidative stress, uh, including lipid peroxidation of neurons, uh, there's impairment of uh, cerebral oxidative energy metabolism uh, and even vasoconstriction in uh, cerebral and myocardial uh, blood vessels. Um, so, uh, again, it's uh, been known for much longer that hyperoxia in normal subjects is bad uh, and recently it's becoming uh, more described as hyperoxia uh, in patients who are critically ill may also be uh, detrimental to their uh, neurologic recovery and ultimately their mortality. This is a paradigm that I think a lot of people are going to have um, some problems with is that oxygen is a biological toxin. Um, um, we know that it is. We talk about oxygen-free radicals, uh, uh, scavengers and, and superoxides and, and, and the like. But I, I don't think that most people on a regular basis would view oxygen as, as a toxin. Yes, and that's part of, uh, I guess, a, it could be a potential barrier to implementing um, uh, trials in the future, looking at normoxia uh, versus hyperoxia, uh, and along with just implementing um, better care for patients is that this, this idea that, again, if some oxygen is good, more must be better. Uh, but I, I think the, the evidence is, is mounting um, that uh, more oxygen uh, beyond that uh, that is required to make uh, a patient normoxic uh, and have a normal oxygen saturation 
is potentially bad, and uh, this is becoming more and more apparent in animal studies uh, and, again, in humans who uh, are exposed to, to hyperoxia. You know, it's, uh, it's probably sacrilegious for me as a pulmonary doctor to mention one of my topics in the same sentence as the uh, low tidal volume ventilation randomized trial. Uh, but, you know, one of the biggest uh, areas of progress in the past 15 years in the ICU has just been turning the tidal volume knob to the left. Uh, and potentially with future studies uh, and potential randomized trials looking at a, a similar similar endpoints with hyperoxia and normoxia, uh, there's the potential that just turning the oxygen knob to the left on the ventilator uh, and on the wall oxygen may have uh, beneficial effects uh, for patients who have not only suffered cardiac arrest, but just patients who are receiving uh, any amount of supplemental oxygen. Take a few minutes and, and tell us about your study, um, you know, how it was structured, uh, how you executed it, and, and what your findings were. Yeah, so what we did was uh, at the time that our study uh, was completed, um, there was uh, 173 patients who had been consecutively uh, treated with therapeutic hypothermia at our uh, medical center, uh, and that comprised our, our study population. All patients had uh, uh, suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. Um, not all of these patients who received therapeutic hypothermia uh, had a ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation arrest. Um, there were patients who had uh, a PEA or asystole as their initial rhythm and went on to receive therapeutic hypothermia. Of these 173 patients who received uh, therapeutic hypothermia, uh, three did not have uh, uh, PaO2s measured uh, during the 24 hours of active cooling, uh, and those three were excluded. And basically, those three didn't receive, didn't uh, have a blood gas drawn because it was soon uh, determined after cooling was started uh, that uh, the team and the family. Uh, preferred transition to comfort care uh, rather than continuous therapy. Uh, so 170 patients comprised our, our study population, and we uh, did something a little bit different from Kilgannon uh, and his group from, from his paper in JAMA in 2010, in that they divide patients into um, hypoxia, uh, normoxia, and hyperoxia, into those three groups. Uh, we decided to, not as uh, in opposition to their method, but in addition to their method, to look at PaO2 as a continuous variable uh, rather than a categorical uh, or ordinal variable. Uh, just to add power to this observation and to add to the results that they uh, had published in their study. Um, the other thing we did was uh, said that, uh, and again, in addition to uh, their paper, um, they used the first PaO2 measured uh, in patients who had been cardiac arrest, uh, and we chose to use the highest PaO2 measured in the 24 hours after cardiac arrest while these patients were receiving therapeutic hypothermia, uh, since theoretically, uh, any exposure uh, in this post-arrest period 
exposure to hyperoxia uh, should be potentially detrimental to the uh, neurologic recovery of these patients. That's uh, essentially how we set up uh, our study. Then we went back and uh, collected PAO2 data on all 170 of these patients. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, a little over 20% of our patients, of these 170 patients, uh, would be considered to have hyperoxia, uh, as defined by uh, Kilgan in the JAMA paper. They had uh, PAO2s measured above 300, so one in five of our patients. Um, uh, in terms of just the raw data uh, and our primary outcome, which was in-hospital mortality, uh, patients who died in the hospital uh, had a higher median uh, PAO2 than patients who survived uh, the hospital discharge. Uh, and I should say that the overall median PAO2 in this entire cohort was about 226. Uh, obviously, there are a number of confounders and potential confounders uh, that can affect uh, a patient's PAO2 uh, and also contribute to uh, in increasing risk for mortality, uh, such as uh, age, uh, how sick you are, which we decide to use shock as a measure of uh, uh, severity of illness for these patients, uh, what your initial rhythm is, um, and even after controlling for five other variables, your maximum PAO2 measured during the 24 hours after cardiac arrest while you're getting therapeutic hypothermia uh, was still associated uh, with an increased risk for in-hospital mortality. Uh, the analysis was done, again, for uh, neurologic outcome uh, using the uh, CPC score, which is the score designed uh, to evaluate patients having suffered cardiac arrest. It's the cerebral performance category score. Uh, and a score above three, so between the range of three and five, uh, is generally accepted uh, as uh, poor neurologic outcomes in this patient population. Uh, basically, when analyzed, uh, again, for these poor neurologic outcomes, a CPC score of uh, three or above, uh, again, uh, maximum PAO2 measured in that, that post-arrest period was associated with uh, an increased risk of having a poor neurologic outcome. Finally, uh, we wanted to see if there was some type of uh, a threshold effect uh, that may be present in these patients. So, for example, um, does it really matter that much if a patient has a PAO2 of 200 uh, compared to 225, uh, or does it matter more if you cross this this hyperoxia threshold uh, that was, uh, again, used in Kilgannon's paper, threshold of around 300. Um, uh, when we uh, broke down the data uh, by CPC score and looking at neurologic outcomes, uh, we saw something similar in that when, you're, when the patient's maximum PAO2 measured uh, after uh, their sudden cardiac arrest, uh, gets above 300, uh, that's when there are significant differences between patients who uh, are normoxic um, or have PAO2s uh, in the, uh, the normal to 
around 227 range. Uh, so there may be, this doesn't prove anything, but there may be a suggestion in uh, some addition to Kilgannon's data that around around 300, so PaO2 or 300 and above is where uh, we're starting to see more and more of the poor neurologic outcomes uh, and deaths associated with uh, hyperoxia. I find that really fascinating. Um, what is the, the the initial response to your findings been? Have you presented this uh, at meetings or or just around the medical center? How people responded uh, to this notion that you want that PO two to be certainly less than three hundred in the post arrest period? Yeah. So uh, this uh, will be presented at a at a meeting in the next uh, month. Uh, but just around the medical center. Uh, people's initial response is uh, immediately asking, how can we do the randomized trial? Uh, how can we prove this? Because, like we talked about earlier, uh, there's always going to be resistance to this idea that more and more oxygen could be bad for a patient. And there will be uh, still a lot of people who don't believe in these negative effects unless uh, you have a randomized trial showing this with this more robust data, because until now, uh, and going ahead from here, all we have so far are associations uh, and no proof that hyperoxia is uh, definitely bad for patients. Um, uh, The other potential uh, problem that people bring up when we say, well, um, if you you make patients hyperoxic after their cardiac arrest may be bad for them. Uh, the question always comes up is, well, then, you know, how do we how do we fix this? Uh, maybe we have enough data right now to say, uh, you know, what hyperoxia is probably bad. It's probably safe to keep a patient normoxic. Uh, how can we do it? Uh, how can we do it safely to avoid hypoxia? Because it's uh, abundantly clear, and we don't need to do the trial, that uh, hypoxia is bad for patients. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough question to answer, especially since the causes of cardiac arrest, uh, especially when you include patients that have PEA and asystole, because of their underlying rhythm, uh, causes all of different types of arrest are many, uh, and including uh, hypoxia as a cause of uh, uh, some of those cardiac arrests, and um, resuscitating patients with room air, for example, or uh, when they're uh, connected to the ventilator, uh, uh, starting their, their FiO2 at some lower level uh, may meet resistance amongst uh, providers and respiratory therapists involved uh, in the care of patients. Um, uh, I, I don't think that uh, our data, uh, nor any of the past data, uh, is enough for ch- huge changes to be implemented in hospitals. Um, I think it's uh, all hypothesis generating, um, and uh, could uh, me personally, I can say that uh, I don't need any more any more data to say that uh, just keeping a patient normoxic. Um, is probably safe, uh, and it, you're not going to get any benefit, any additional benefit from uh, giving them more and more oxygen. Uh, 
basically that those are the conversations that come up when people hear that hyperoxia may be bad. Is number one, how do we how can we prove it if we think we need to go out and prove it? And two, uh, how can we implement uh, changes in care and protocols uh, to target normoxia in these patients? Well, I think what's interesting about it is is that you know the paradigm in medicine is that some is good, more must be better, and we see this get applied over and over again. And and you know from what I'm hearing from you, if you in a post resuscitation you get that first blood gas and your PO2 is you know 450, uh, you may be causing harm to that patient. Again, there's there's no data uh, there's no data out there just anywhere in animals and humans to suggest that hyperoxia has ever been good for animals or humans. There, people don't do better if you give them super physiologic uh, amounts of oxygen uh, and drive their PO their PaO2 up and up. Um, it's just it's just this like you said. be curious to see how this gets accepted, you know, for those who have contributed to shock literature, because for so many years, um, you know, there's been such work on, you know, looking at the damage of radical oxygen species, and perhaps that, you know, by providing people with an antioxidant, or excuse, I should say an animal, as far as antioxidants prior to injury, that we could abrogate a lot of the, the tissue and cellular damage that was associated with uh, a shock, you know, experimental shock state. I think those people would be reasonably easy um, um, convince uh, people to convince regarding this. I used to teach when I, I was there at Vanderbilt for you know, 14 years teaching, you know, fellows and residents that again, you know, somebody doesn't need to be on 60% FiO2 if their saturations are fine on 30% FiO2 because of this idea of, you know, radical oxygen species in somebody who's in a post-shock state, be it from a trauma or a burn.
uh, when measured uh, after the uh, achieved return of spontaneous circulation. Uh, so uh, again, I think um, what we can take away from the literature that exists currently on hyperoxia is that it's probably as bad, uh, and there it's probably perfectly safe uh, to have a patient be normoxic. And since it's safe, since normoxia is safe, uh, why not just target uh, that level of PaO2 rather than expose the patient to something potentially injurious in hyperoxia? Now, on a non-scientific perspective, I would like to hear how you would react to, you know, words mean a lot to me. I, I'm, I'm a big word nerd. But, you know, thinking from an evolutionary perspective of, you know, four and a half billion years ago, for the prologue of Jurassic Park, I think this is fascinating. It says, they said, think about oxygen, necessary for life now, but oxygen is actually a metabolic poison, a corrosive gas like fluorine. When oxygen was first produced as a waste product by certain plant cells some three billion years ago, it created a crisis for all life on Earth. Those plants were polluting the environment, exhaling a lethal gas. Eventually, Earth eventually had an atmosphere incompatible with life. Nevertheless, life on Earth took care of itself. And thinking of the human being, 100 years is a long time. And it goes on. But basically the point is, is that when we think about the planet from an evolutionary perspective, oxygen was a waste product, a biological poison. We evolved to use that biological poison, and we use that with incredible biological safeguards like nuclear fuel. And so thinking of it from an evolutionary perspective and a biological perspective, should people really be shocked by the findings of your research? Uh, I, I personally don't think so at all. Again, you know, we live the majority of our lives in a state of normoxia where our, our hemoglobin saturation and PaO2 is very tightly controlled in a specific range. Uh, if it gets low, obviously we become ill. There's not much logic in thinking that uh, high amounts of dissolved oxygen shouldn't be just as bad as low, since again, uh, like you mentioned, uh, we spend, our bodies spend pretty much our entire lives trying to maintain oxygen levels in a certain, a certain range. So I completely agree that Thinking about it from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, it, it doesn't make much sense to think that uh, providing superphysiological levels of oxygen and driving the PaO2 up should be beneficial at all to people since it's not beneficial at all uh, in our everyday life. Well, this will be really fun research to follow. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. This SCCM iCriticalCare podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical, where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the chief medical officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee.
His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.